thank you for downloading this episode of the Emirates Natural History Group podcast. Throughout this series, we will be sharing recordings of our lectures from regional experts about nature, history and adventure. If you're not familiar with our organisation, we're a non-profit group led entirely by volunteers. We're united by our desire to help the community study and appreciate the fascinating and unique natural and human heritage of the UAE and the wider region. My name is Arabella Willing, and I'm the chair of the Abu Dhabi chapter of the Emirates Natural History Group. Together, we organise lectures, field trips, we publish a journal, and we distribute awards and grants. In this episode, we will be hearing from Dr. Raj Joshi, who is not only a medical doctor, but also an incredible mountaineer and expedition leader. Dr. Raj is one of the select few who have successfully climbed unguided the highest mountain on every continent in the world. In this talk, Dr. Raj will speak about his various expeditions and what he's gained from them, and there'll be a special focus on summiting Mount Everest. Dr. Raj was fortunate enough to stay safe whilst on his way up to base camp when the devastating earthquake hit Nepal. He'll talk a little bit about this, but also how he continues to help with the disaster relief operations. We were introduced to Dr. Raj through our friends at Elegant Resorts. And if, like me, these tales leave you itching for your own adventure, I highly recommend checking out elegantresorts.ae and their collection of tailor-made experiences with Dr. Raj's company, The Adventure Boutique. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much to Arabella and the Emirates National History Group Abu Dhabi chapter in conjunction with this wonderful venue at the Park Hyatt Abu Dhabi for hosting me this evening and also to Anthony with Elegant Resorts for his help and support in bringing us together and also to my family who are in the audience and also thank you very much to all of you for attending this evening. So who am I? I'm an expedition leader and a medical doctor versed in different terrains of this beautiful world, in jungle, desert, polar and mountain environments. Now, I've been uh, fortunate to have climbed the highest mountain on every continent in the world and been to some of the most amazing places and met with the most unique people. I've also been lucky to be involved in leading high-profile projects. Some of you may or may not have seen them, such as the BBC Comet Relief Expedition, where I took a group of celebrities onto Kilimanjaro. And uh, from that expedition alone, we raised approximately 3.3 million pounds to combat malaria in East Africa. More recently, I uh, led David Beckham and his three friends, along with the BBC, in the Brazilian Amazon jungle and also worked on a, on a recent film called Everest with uh, some of the, the Hollywood actors, Josh Brolin and Jason Clarke, to look after them. But how did I get into all of this? So I'm from the, the Midlands in the UK. It's not known for its extreme environments. But I had an amazing father and mother who took my brother and I to the more rugged and wilder parts of the UK camping, exploring the hills of North Wales and the forests and over to Scotland. It was areas like these where I developed a, a great affinity for the outdoors and understood the sort of meaning and the power of Mother Nature. 
So I've been fortunate in my, in my upbringing. And people also ask me, why do, I, why do I do it? And I think for myself, I can gain many benefits. I think anyone can gain many benefits for, for going on these adventures. One of them is simply the challenge. You know, doing something adventurous means you challenge yourself. In the sort of environments I work in, you test yourself against Mother Nature. And there isn't really a greater test than that by going up against nature. By achieving something, I believe you develop a lot of confidence, a lot of self-belief. I mentioned I've been to some of the most amazing places and exploring the different terrains of the planet, such as deserts over in Sahara in North Africa, the jungle, this is in the jungles of Sierra Leone. Polar regions, this is over in Antarctica. And uh, beautiful mountains at high altitude over in uh, Switzerland. Just some examples. You can also gain new skills. It doesn't have to be anything as extreme as shooting a bow and arrow with your feet. It could just be something as simple as you know how to pack for your next holiday in about 15 minutes. But there's always something which people gain, I find, from these trips. For maybe the younger generation, it can help improve your CV. It can help differentiate yourself from another person. I know in my early days going for, for jobs, I was asked to explain my other side or the adventure side. And as long as you can justify what you gain, both as a person and also how it helps you in your work, then it can be quite a powerful tool. To me, the people on any of the trips are the most important. And it, it could be, you know, what I find really enriching is the different type of people I work with from so many different backgrounds. I could be with a, a Hollywood celebrity like Josh Brolin one moment. And to me, what's really special are the indigenous population. So this is um, the Sand Tribe, who are phenomenal survivors and hunter-gatherers still having the skills that they've had throughout time and keeping those practiced, which I think some of us may be starting to lose those skills. But unfortunately, amazing races like these are under threat. They are the oldest inhabitants of Africa. They are believed by archaeologists and geneticists to derive from the Homo sapiens group that um, lived over there. But they are under threat. You know, a lot of their land is sadly being taken away in the name of progress. These are a tribe from West Papua. Thankfully, they were friendly, although we did encounter some uh, ones which weren't so friendly and actually got holed up for about three days. Uh, maybe I shouldn't mention it in front of my family, but we got holed up by three days by a group of unfriendly tribespeople with uh, bows and arrows, spears, machetes, and poisoned uh, blow darts. But thankfully, Everything turned out okay in the end. This is Yanomami. It was a real privilege spending time with the Yanomami. I mean, these people have never even heard of football before. Spent time with Maasai as well, who are amazing survivors. But also, in nature, is the wildlife, which is particularly special to me. I think we can learn a lot from the animal kingdom and how they interact with one another and, uh, and also with nature. Jesus at play. This is a, a track track chat over in the Namib Desert. 
wild mountain gorillas. Sadly, there are only, from the last consensus done just over a year ago, 880 of these wild mountain gorillas left in the whole world when you consider you know, the population, the human population of billions. So they are critically endangered, but they are probably one of the greatest wildlife experiences anyone can ever encounter. And this uh, baby gorilla is approximately 18 months old. One thing, though, which I think is really important from what I developed from, from these adventures is appreciation. You know, appreciation of what I've got. This is a, a Maasai car caravan going off trading. And uh, they can walk for days just to go off to barter some goods. We can just pop down to the shops. They're also finding it increasingly more difficult to find water, partly due to the harsh environment around them and partly due to um, urbanization and civilization means they're being driven out of their, their, their normal areas. So it makes me appreciate what I have and it's just the little things which I try not take for granted. And what I gain from this, I think you can gain things just in your everyday life. It can help you against the stresses and strains of everyday life. And I believe that people going on these adventures test themselves can undergo transformational change. The feedback I've had over the years from people in my group has been, been quite amazing about how they've uh, contacted me even years later and mentioned this or that. You see them <coughs> developing either as an individual or they go on to learn new skills or go on to achieve greater successes. And I also find it helps them in their work. You know, it's, it's character building and it, it provides resilience, which I think gets more and more important in a modern society with the increased demanding and fast pace of life. I'm going to be talking a bit about uh, Mount Everest, you know, not only because it's uh, the highest mountain in the world, so just as an interest, but also it's, it's prominent in my mind for various reasons. One is because it's the 10th anniversary since I summited with my team, and I also was fortunate to be involved in the British Army Gurkha Everest Expedition this year, which put another 13 members on the top. There's also another reason which I'm going to allude to shortly. But, you know, I believe that everyone has their own Everest. It doesn't really have to be climbing to the top of Mount Everest. Everyone has their own Everest, no matter what that bar is. So on the adventure side, it could just be going out for a day hike. But I think things like this can bring so many benefits, so just go out and do it. Also, getting to the top of Everest or any other peak is not the be-all and end-all. To me, it's a bonus. It's the actual journey, which is the most important part, the experience, living it day to day. And uh, although Everest was 10 years ago, my most recent expedition was just three weeks ago to the wilds of Sierra Leone, where I was leading a team to climb the highest mountain over there called Mount Bintamani. But to get to there, it was a journey that was special, meeting the local population, going through the villages, and going through some glorious jungle. So Everest. Mount Everest, the highest mountain in the world, stands at uh, approximately 8,848 metres. It's formed about 65 million years ago by tectonic plates, the Eurasian and the Indo-Australian plate crashing into each other. And it's still moving and shifting, so Everest is actually growing by, um, 
a few millimeters every year. It's situated, as I'm sure you know, in South Asia, just on the border between uh, Nepal and Tibet, forming part of the great Himalayan chain. In Nepal, it's situated to the northeast between the Nepal and Tibet border. Nepal, a beautiful country. You'll be interested to know from a show of hands how many people have been to Nepal before. A few of you, fantastic. And everyone been over to the Everest region before? Okay. So you know what a wonderful country it is. Population of just under 30 million. And one of the poorer countries in the world, but some of the most fantastic, loyal, and genuine people you'll ever encounter. And very close to my heart. Before I talk about the uh, little trip we had 10 years ago, I just want to show something which had real impact in many people's lives, including my own, which happened quite recently, just uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, apologies in advance, because there might be a bit of swearing, and I'm sure you'll understand why when uh, I play the movie. The ground is shaking. So, a uh, massive earthquake in uh, 2015 of magnitude 7.8 hit Nepal, and that was actually followed a few days later by another big earthquake of, I believe, uh, 7.3. Now, I was uh, quite fortunate because I was on my way up to join an expedition exactly where those guys were. But I was lucky because I was about two or three days below that on my way up when I got hit. And this is actually where I was uh, on an area renowned because it's got a magnificent monastery called Tengbashe Monastery. And you can see some of the devastation you know, that caused in, in, in those few seconds. Sadly, that was an avalanche triggered at base camp from the earthquake. And I think about 18 people died with numerous others injured, including um, some friends of mine. And overall, though, in Nepal, the devastation was widespread with, I believe, close to 9,000 people died, around 22,000 injured, and 3.5 million people made homeless. And even now, two and a half years on, there's probably about a million people still homeless over there. So I actually, um, this is a friend of mine. I just brought him in, Tindu. He's uh, one of the world's best Sherpas, and he helped guide Saranoff finds to the top of Everest. He was a friend of mine. And uh, he wasn't involved in the incident in 2015. But as you know, after any big earthquake, you get numerous aftershocks. And I think it was just towards the end of last year, there was a, uh, a tremor of about, I think, just over five uh, in 
that region, he was climbing on another mountain guiding a client, and suddenly he, um, he got killed there. But the devastation uh, was widespread, not just in the mountains, but in the city and also the villages around, uh, around Nepal. And uh, what, um, what happened from that as well, which I had an idea in mind to try to support projects, but I was spurred to, to hasten what I was trying to create, which is a, a foundation called the Adventure Boutique Foundation. And we applied for official charity status now in England and Wales, which we should hopefully get early next year. And people have already kindly donated. So some of my Sherpa crew I've worked with in the past who were killed, you know, they're the main breadwinners for their families. And they don't really get much government support. They have to rely on friends and family. So already I've started trying to give money towards them to support them. I'm also trying to support in this area, which is called Newacot, which is to help with uh, the rebuilding of, of their homes. So I stayed on for around two months on disaster relief operations, trying to get into the mo more remote areas where the government assets couldn't really reach, where the infrastructure was damaged. Um, so the roads could only go up to limited ways. Some of it you had to go over by foot. And initially it was supplies and shelters. So we, we tried to work and linked up with, with various people to help build that. And also uh, with my medical background, also was able to treat people who couldn't get into... Um, any sort of definitive care along, along the way. Now, you know, as an individual, you can have some impact, but it's really the team effort, you know, the team around you and what you can create. You're much stronger as a team. And I was fortunate in, I suppose, how I, I may have helped was using my contacts. So this is a, a prominent hospital in Kathmandu, which is in danger of collapsing. And the gentleman next to me with a stethoscope was a lead physician, and he put a call out for help because they didn't know what to do. They had to evacuate all their patients, including their intensive care patients, out into the car park because their hospital was deemed structurally unsafe. And um, I went over and had a look and tried to help organize some semblance of order in the car park. But then got on to all my contacts and those, such as expedition operators. So this is some of the tents they kindly donated, some of the local uh, expedition operators I know, to help um, shelter the patients, not only from the rain, but the heat, and provide some accommodation. There's also other people there, you can see in the T-shirts, Team Rubicon, who are, are mainly made up of ex-military vets. So I had a link with them, so I instigated them to come out and help. And uh, many hands were able to achieve a lot and got all the patients out. Um, so at least they were under something which is better than nothing. I also was fortunate to, to know... Um, the uh, granddaughter of Sir Edmund Hillary, who was the first cemetery of Everest, along with Tenzing Norgay Sherpa. So Amelia Hillary was a, like an ambassador for Nepal. So in a way, I um, contacted her to use her contacts. So she got on the phone to the government, and we managed to get this magnificent field tent, which we went over there in the dead of the night in a, in a van with Amelia and another friend, and managed to load it up into a van and took it over. So you could see some intensive care patients being housed in, in there. But on a, you know, on a lighter note, this is going back now, and some of you have experienced Nepal and know what a magnificent country it is. And, and you know, I urge people to, to go back there. Immediately after the earthquake and that following year, tourism was down by, by 40%, which is expected. You know, people will naturally be, be worried. 
but they rely quite heavily on tourism, you know, and I'm happy taking people there. I've done expeditions every year since and haven't really encountered a problem. But this is going back a few years now, 10 years ago, and those who've experienced Kathmandu know what a chaotic city it is. You know, it's vibrant, it's alive, it's, a, it's an assault on your senses in a way. When I'm there, I can't actually wait to get out of Kathmandu into the, the serenity of the mountains. But after spending some time in the mountains, I can't wait to get back into Kathmandu, funnily enough. And the people there as well are, um, are very colourful. Some interesting and amazing uh, customs they have, and even the wildlife as well in Kathmandu in the city itself. So these two books, written by Bromley Stokes Broncolay, and I put there, because our expedition was actually a, a military expedition. And... Um, these two gentlemen were part of the, the military, British military, who summited Everest in 1976. And no other military team had done that route until we came along, so 31 years later. Prior to that, the team did some training. They all had different backgrounds and experience, but we had quite a strong team, which we needed to attempt something like Everest. And uh, we did some training in various environments, including Scotland. So you can see how dreary and miserable it looks but Scotland is actually one of the, the best training environments in the world. It's just got everything. It's got brutal conditions. It probably doesn't have the altitude. But as a, a late great mountaineer, Don Willans, uh, said something uh, along the lines that he believed that the Himalaya are a great training ground for Scotland. <laughs> and many of us had high altitude experience. You know, most of the team had summited an 80,000 metre peak before, which I, I believe is, although not necessary, it really helps when you trying to tackle something like Everest. Because I think it increases your chances of success on the mountain, as in getting to the summit, but increases your chances of coming back down and alive, which is the most important part. So many of us had summited the sixth highest mountain in the world at 8,201 metres. So this is the Motley crew. This is our team. You know, we had strength and we knew each other, like most people going up on Everest, where they can join it into a random outfit. So we knew each other quite well, and we had that common bond. So we start our journey, you start your journey from Kathmandu to get into the mountains, into the Cumber region, which is where Everest is situated. You actually you can fly up now, up to a certain point, but it's still quite a few days then just to get to the base camp on Mount Everest. So you fly from Kathmandu over to a place called Lukla by light aircraft. So already one of our team had a free upgrade to a business class, and he was making the most of it while waiting for his flight. And um, these planes are light aircraft. They don't seat many people. And it's amazing how skillful the pilots are because they don't seem to have any radar. And they could be flying and weaving in and out of mountains. And the cloud comes in. And you know you're only metres away from the hillside. And in a way, they're flying blind, but they know the route so well, um, they can weave in and out quite intricately. The landing strip as well is quite exciting. Um, it's... Um, it's been mentioned in newspapers as one of the most exciting, in inverted commas, landing areas in the world. Situated at 2,800 metres, and uh, it's set into a mountainside itself, so there's a drop-off from the other end of, um, of that runway. And it's, 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 in a way, it's shaped a bit like a, a ski ramp. It's got an upward hill, a curved upward hill. And uh, that's to really help the plane land and break 
because where the photo's taken, you've got another sort of cliff face. So it tries to break in time and then veers off to the right to park itself up. But you can see, um, slightly different to other airports, just there around pointing, there's a little dog walking the track. And along the fence here, uh, people who come for the first time are normally slightly shocked because they got bits of old aircraft which have crashed, including old fuselages. <laughs> but it, it is a stunning flight. Um, however, the risk is real. They've had, unfortunately, a few more crashes since then. Now, I've actually lost a, um, a chap who worked as my assistant leader when I led a trip a few years ago. He died in a crash, unfortunately, a few years ago in that, along, along with a few other British people. So you start your journey, and the beauty about the Everest Trail is the environment is so different. You know, each day keeps changing. You, in lush valleys, you can see these huge suspension bridges just crossing over a river called the Dudkozi, the Milk River. And you make your way up. And you've got several lodges en route, so I find it quite luxurious actually getting up to base camp. You have nice lodges or you can camp. A lot of people these days go in the lodges. So this is the first lodge we came to on our first day. And soon after they arrived, the team actually seemed to be pretty clapped out. I, for some reason, was the only one awake at this time. So um, I started chatting to this American couple who were the only other people in the lodge. And they, they actually came to chat with me because they were quite concerned. They were worried that all the team was coming down with altitude sickness. And they actually suggested to me that maybe we should look about going back down a bit. And I tried to reassure them the best as I could without telling them the truth, that actually these, uh, <coughs> these guys, my team, had arrived just a few days earlier. And all they seemed to do in Kathmandu uh, was um, go out drinking. And so they were now just feeling the effects I think in their minds, they thought it's good training for the altitude that was to come. But like any good soldier, once the food comes out, they now become alive. <laughs> but the altitude is a serious point. You know, it does kill every year. Even people going up on the base camp trails, they don't know what they're doing or if they're led poorly. So altitude is a real problem. There's seven main features of altitude sickness. Headache is the most common one, and nausea, I say, is the most, second most common. This can then lead into people vomiting. And if you're vomiting due to altitude, and I always go on the premise that it's altitude until proven otherwise, then it's best to then not go up any further and maybe even go back down. People can also feel dizzy. They can lose their appetite. They can also hit a real barrier. It's very hard to explain. They hit this wall where they become incredibly fatigued and lethargic. Unless you experience it yourself, it's very difficult to explain. So, you know, those are the common problems. And it, it's created by the reduction in pressure as you go up, which means although you've got the same amount of oxygen in the air, your oxygen molecules are more spaced out. So every breath you take in, you're taking less oxygen. So when you reach base camp, you've got about half the amount of oxygen available to you. And when you're standing on the top of Everest, you've got a third of the amount of oxygen available. And so imagine your body working hard in that environment you understand what a challenge it can be. There's other risks as well, as well as the altitude. You know, there's the wildlife. The, uh, the yaks are incredible creatures. You know, they're great beasts of burden, incredibly strong and powerful. They're not naturally aggressive, but I always advise people to take a wide berth because people have died before. You know, they can get startled easily, and when they go on the rampage, they have knocked people off trails, and their horns as well can be quite deadly, and people have been gored before. So if you ever do go there, and you can to one, they're not naturally dangerous, but given respect, given a 
white bird. So you carry on up, and you're just in the most glorious environment with uh, mind-blowing scenery around you. I mean, it's got some of the biggest mountains in the world just in that area. You also feel that sense of awe and that spirituality and the power. The <coughs> Nepal itself is a, a Hindu country. About 80% of it is Hinduism, but in the mountains it's mostly Buddhism. What's nice, though, is the exchange in beliefs they take. So a lot of Hindus incorporate the Buddhist practices into, into their beliefs and their religion. And likewise, some of the, uh, the Buddhists incorporate some of the Hindu practices. So, so they don't seem to have a problem with each other with whatever religion you are over in Nepal. And along the way, you get a reminder of the, the spirituality felt, especially by the, by the Sherpa people who, who predominate in the mountains. So this over here is called the Chortan. You might be able to make out some old Buddha eyes over here. These are Mani stones with scriptures. And they're put in areas of prominence because they see the mountains, the, the Sherpas and the Buddhists see the mountains as deities. And when you're in there, you, you do feel that power. I mean, Everest itself, it was named actually after uh, Sir George Everest, who was a former uh, general surveyor of India. Uh, but the local name, the Nepali name is um, Sagamatha, and the Tibetan name is Chomalunga, which essentially means uh, goddess, uh, mother of the earth. And you have other reminders, such as prayer wheels. And on the way up, you come to what's called Namchi Bazaar. It's a Sherpa stronghold, in a way. It's almost like their um, unofficial capital. So you can pick up supplies, you meet the Sherpas. And you also get to understand why the Sherpas are so strong. So these are, uh, this is a Sherpa child, and uh, this is a Shapani child. If you notice, for instance, their red rosy cheeks, Sorry? So, so Sherpas, Sherpas sort of mean people from the east. They originally come from Tibet. And they moved over to Tibet about 500 years ago and settled in the, in the higher areas of Nepal. Exactly. They're actually a race. Well, Sherpa with a big S is actually a race, but you can actually be a Sherpa and be a high-altitude porter. So I can be called a Sherpa with a small S if I work as a high-altitude porter on an expedition. But with a big S, it's actually an ethnic group. And you notice their red rosy cheeks. That's uh, a condition people can call polycythemia ruba vera. It's because they've got an increased uh, con concentration of hemoglobin. And hemoglobin, your red blood cells, helps it carry oxygen around your body. So with that increase, they can carry more oxygen around their body. But they've also been studied at a cellular level. And they find that even at a cellular level, I believe, their mitochondria can utilize oxygen more efficiently. So that's why they're so strong in the mountains. They're adapted to the mountains. We can't adapt, we acclimatize. And then around the Namchi Bazaar area, you get your first glimpses of Mount Everest. And this is days away. And it's actually about, you might not make it out from this picture, but it's about uh, over six vertical kilometers. No, probably just under six vertical kilometers higher than where this photo is taken. And you see all this here is, you know, it's not really cloud, that's actually spindrift. This is actually snow being blasted off the mountain. It's because Everest is so high that it's mostly in what's called the jet stream. And the jet stream have winds up to 175 miles per hour. So you can't climb Everest most of the time. Although it looks like blue sky, a perfect day, it is lower down. But on there, if you try standing on top of there, you just get blasted off instantly. 
there's very few periods in the whole year where sometimes a jet stream flicks up and that means it's a good time to climb, climb Everest. So people can climb, although it still can be quite strong, but winds lower than, let's say, 35 miles per hour, which still can be quite gusty, but that's the time generally you can, you can go if the other conditions are right. Then you, you continue travelling up in a, in a beautiful environment. And en route as well, if you know the right people, again, comes down to contacts. Uh, you can visit some, uh, some powerful people to help you on your journey. So this is Lama Gaishi. He's a very powerful Lama um, because he's a self-taught master. And I took the team there, we went there, and uh, we, we got a blessing from Lama Gaishi. And uh, this blessing, afterwards he gave us some uh, rice and a little bag and a nice, nice card in which he, he wrote something in it. And he told us that, uh, via a translator, that you know, if you're on Mount Everest and an avalanche starts coming down at you, don't worry, just uh, get these little rices, uh, this bag of rice out, rip it open and start throwing the lights towards the avalanche and it'll all be okay. So we're slightly amused by that, a few giggles, but I'll tell you what, every single member of the team always took their little rice bag up when we were climbing. Also, you've got some beautiful wildlife. This can be quite hard to see, and most people don't see it if they don't look properly. But this is a sacred bird in Nepal, a damper in fey and pheasant. Very beautiful. It's like a Hemenon rose finch. And also, you get lovely trinkets. And some of these, though, are quite powerful to the Sherpa people. These things are called Z-stones. Now, the Sherpas are some of the richest people I know, not just in their spirituality, but some of these Z-stones, these aren't real ones, they're made for more for the tourists, but the real ones are being sold now in places such as China for uh, over millions. You know, so I know some Sherpa people who are extremely wealthy uh, if, they, if they wanted to actually sell them, but these hold, hold great meaning to them, so they normally don't sell them. Beautiful flowers, national flower, the rhododendrons, we're lucky, it was time we were in bloom. And en route though, we thought it would be a good idea to take on a couple of other peaks just to train on them a bit, get ourselves more acclimatised and stronger. So there's a mountain called Pakaldi, which is under 6,000 metres, which uh, we went up. And looking down, that's looking down in, a, in an area called Ferriche. And you may just be able to make out a few buildings there. And that's where they situate the Himalayan Rescue Association, which is like a, a small clinic. And it deals with a lot of trekkers and climbers throughout the year, the seasons, when people go up, and does a great job in saving lives. And after that, we went to tackle another peak called Island Peak, which was actually um, found by Eric Shipton when he wrecked the region and named so because he thought it was a mountain in the Sea of Ice. So this is another beautiful peak to go on. You climb up on a lovely summit ridge, which isn't too, too exposed, but it's narrow enough. And as well as the achievement of reaching the top, you get fantastic views. And there's a peak over there, which is the fifth highest mountain in the world, called Makalu. So from there, we carry on the journey up, going above 4,000 metres along the trail to reach uh, the base camp. This, though, is an area which is quite powerful, and a lot of people find it quite emotional. And when I've taken people here, some of them actually have tears coming down their eyes. You can make out a stunning backdrop, but over here you can see these are cairns. And there's a cairn pretty much for every person who's died on Everest. Sadly, each year I go, more and more of these cairns are actually being built. Here's a quite a famous one. So those who've 
seen the movie Everest or maybe read the book Into Thin Air, may know about Scott Fisher, who's one of the, the guys leading the Mountain Madness expedition. Um, and uh, in 96, there was another tragedy on the mountain, but it also shows you how, uh, how strong and powerful nature is and how we should respect it. And here, this is uh, another reminder. This is actually made of Sheffield steel, transported to Nepal. And it looks quite futuristic, but it's filled with rocks from Everest. And you might notice uh, a couple of uh, famous names of all the climbers who've died over the years. George Mallory and Andrew Irvin, where the verdict's still out in a way, were they the actual first cemeteries of Everest because they disappeared last seen going for the, the summit. And then you come to the last bastion of civilization. You're now just before base camp, above 5,000 meters, in an area called Gorik Shep, which is a lovely area, plenty of room. And here you can see the great Kumbu Glacier stretching down. So this is actually all ice. It can be up to a kilometer thick. This is a, a dry glacier because you can see where the crevasses are. It's filled with some of the, the rubble, the rocks. So it looks dirty in the, in the appearance. And as you continue from Gorik Shep towards Everett itself, you see the glacier going up onto the mountain. And here, you can't actually see the top of Everest, but this is uh, approaching the top of Everest. The, the actual summit's hidden behind. You have the west shoulder of Everest here. This is called the Lolar Pass. If you actually go over this and drop down to the other side, you're actually in Tibet. So that's how close you are to the border. This is our base camp at 5,350 meters. This was my home for a couple of months. And uh, you can see the, the environment you're living in. It's not particularly pleasant. Because this is actually a glacier, it's all ice underneath. It constantly groans and creaks throughout the day and the night, and it shifts as well. So normally you have to re-pitch your tent because you come, out from a, come back from a climb on the mountain, you come back down, and you notice that your tent is actually at an, at an angle or almost upside down, or has a pool of water, or you find the crevasses opening up underneath. So you normally have to re-pitch it once or twice in the, in the season if you're unlucky. What's the temperature there? The temperature is, um, it'll go down to about minus 10, minus 15. So it's around the sort of zero marks. So even the day with the sunlight, people are normally out in a big down jacket to keep yourself warm. But it is a beautiful environment. You know, it's quite a, a, a powerful environment around you with glorious scenery, and uh, it's, it's also, you know, very peaceful. <coughs> Raj, you say it's peaceful. How busy is it generally? It's, it's getting, uh, it's busier now from this exhibition I've seen compared to 10 years ago, but it's stretched now, base camp stretches for about a, a mile. So to actually walk from one end to another, because your altitude can take some people a couple of hours. So it doesn't feel that crowded because you have your own space. Before you go climbing, though, on the mountain, you, you do what's called a puja ceremony. So the Sherpas don't climb, and um, the other, other foreign climbers don't climb, really, until you're blessed and the mountain's blessed. So we have a, a lama here who does a ceremony for us. So the route through Everest, you have to go from this side the, through the, what's called the Kumbu Icefall, which is essentially, essentially a, a flowing river of ice. It's about a, a kilometer uh, vertical. And that's the most dangerous part of Everest, climb on, on any side. And the difficulty is, as soon as you step up from base camp to climb the mountain, you've got to go through this. And when you come back down, you've got to go through this every time. And really, it's, it's, it's a bit of a jumbled mess, to be honest. It constantly shifts and changes. Because there's a flowing river of ice, it moves each day. So the route could be changing every day. 
So you've got big ISO racks the size of uh, houses which can crumble and fall at any moment. And if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, that unfortunately can be your number up. And you've got some huge crevasses you have to cross. Sometimes you could be on a weak snow bridge and you don't understand, you don't realise there's a crevasse underneath you and sometimes they do open up. So those are some of the real risks as well as avalanches coming down. And sadly, the year before the earthquake, there were quite a few Sherpas actually killed in the Cumber Icefall due to an avalanche coming down. So you have to have a little bit of luck as well as your own skill, experience and judgement to, to get through this. This is just one of the team members um, showing how the technique of crossing a ladder, although this is quite an easy crevasse to, to cross. So a crevasse bridge. First thing I do is clip on a safety line. Grab the other line. And it's with an awkward technique. Sort of balancing crampons and the rungs. Just gently make your way out over the gap. Awkward feeling. Okay. Over, unclip, and away. So you you come to the top of the um, ice fall, and you start entering in. Um, well, this gives another classic example of the sort of jumble mess the ice fall is, and how route finding can be quite difficult sometimes. But eventually, when you uh, come out through the ice fall, you you come into an area called the Western Coombe because it's a, a valley. You have a Camp 1 just at the top of the icefall at the start of the Western Coombe, although we decided to ignore that camp. And we, for various reasons, we felt strong enough to push directly to Camp 2 and also we felt objectively it wasn't the safest camp, which was proved right because they actually got dusted by an avalanche um, during that season. And in this valley, that's quite tiring. I mean, it's quite deceptive because you, you're gaining about another 400 or 500 metres, even though it looks relatively flat. You've still got crevasses to negotiate. And people will associate Everest with the cold, but the heat, the heat can be a real problem. So in that environment, it was probably over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. It's sweltering because snow reflects, you know, probably about 80% of the ultraviolet radiation back at you. And it's like a, a snow cauldron because you've got snow on the ground, and you've got snow from the mountains on either side. So it's physically draining and, and quite tiring. You eventually get to your camp two, which is around 6,400 metres. Here you're above 6,000 metres. It starts getting more and more serious. People get infections. You know, they get problems at altitude. Their body starts wasting away. And the problem with a rarefied atmosphere, you have the lack of oxygen, so your body can't heal properly. So you're more likely to get infections. And once you get them, you normally don't shake them off until you get back down, not just to base camp, but get back down to sea level, where you can start getting the enriched oxygen and your body can start recovering. So people weaken, and it's getting that balance correct between acclimatization to the, to the altitude and not wasting away. You push up further from camp two, and you go on what's called 
the notorious Lozi face. It's notorious because people, unfortunately, do come a cropper on there. You know, someone died, uh, got hit by falling ice coming down. Uh, people have fallen off the slope, and it's, it's quite icy and quite steep. Someone's actually, unfortunately, died just going to the toilet from their, their Camp 3 because your Camp 3 is situated around the middle of the slope. They come out um, and, unfortunately, didn't fix their crampons. And while they were doing their business, they actually slid down the, uh, the face. So it's that attention to detail which is really important. And it's harder to have that attention to detail, mainly because your brain starves of oxygen and you're quite tired and can be dehydrated. That's uh, Lotsi, which is one of the 8,000 metre peaks. And this is just going up the Lotsi face. Till you come to Camp 3, which is above 7,000 metres. Above 7,000 metres, some people start calling this area the death zone. I think it was a term coined originally by the 52 Swiss expedition, saying survival becomes harder. There could be some truth into that, because medically, you know, when you're at, uh, above base camp, around 5,500 metres above, you get what's called apoptosis, which is cell death. So your cells start slowly dying off. And there's some belief that around these altitudes, your cells start rapidly dying. So if you actually live in this environment and given food and water, your body will just decay and eventually die. But it is a harsh environment to live in. And, you know, can't stress the importance of water. So even though you didn't feel like eating, we tried to snack on what we could, but most of the time we didn't want to because of the altitude. Hydration was really essential. and We forced water down us. So sometimes you spend all night taking it in turns, one of you brewing up, giving each other fluid, the next person wakes up after a while and does the same. So you've got to make sure your drills are, are sharp and good. But you're rewarded, again, by incredible views. So that's Choyu, the sixth highest mountain in the world, just on the Tibetan side. And from here, a lot of people start going with oxygen. So you go from oxygen, from Camp 3, over to Camp 4, which is your last camp before you go for summit. Camp 4 is your high camp, situated just below 8,000 metres. But to get there, you go across um, the yellow band, mainly because of its coloration over to the last obstacle before a Camp 4 called the Geneva Spur. That's crossing over onto the yellow band and then eventually making your way up to the Geneva Spur until finally you arrive at Camp 4, which is your high camp. So this is one of the team members, just given a description now, after arriving in a Camp 4. Okay. All right, so back to Camp 4. Uh, we got here varying times this afternoon. Pretty hard flog from Camp 3 to here. Camp 3 was at uh, 7,100 metres, so an 800 metre pull up. Uh, used oxygen for the first time, which made a hell of a difference. Um, but those who say that it's not hard work when you're on oxygen are lying. It's still flipping hard work. You can see we're stateless now. We're, we're suffering. Uh. So now just a few thoughts from myself. Okay, you're on. We're currently at Camp 4, just below 8,000 metres. Um, very old slog coming up from Camp 3 to Camp 4. I mean, I've just got in actually uh, probably after 4 o'clock and just got myself about five hours just to rest and rehydrate after that 10 hour journey before I got another probably 
you know, his 14, 16 hour round trip when he set off at 9 o'clock this evening. Um, the guys are doing all well. Um, logistics weren't brilliant at Camp 4, which uh, unfortunately uh, delayed things, but, you know, we'll be setting off soon. Um, <coughs> now it's going to start getting even more serious when we go above 8,000 metres. Recently there was a summit attempt by a group and a, a Sherpa went down with a high altitude cerebral edema, which is a severe and uh, fatal form of um, acute mantle sickness. Um, and he was on oxygen above 8,000 metres. Thankfully he got, he got rescued, I had to revise on that one. And um, who knows what will happen. But we're all stocked up, we've all got our IV decks and our med kit. We're all sort of um, pretty clued up on what to do if there is an emergency. Hopefully that won't be so, but um, we'll keep our fingers crossed. And um, I'm sure all of us will get make it to the summit and back down again to the South Cole. So that's the route up to the summit. Going up to the balcony where you normally change your oxygen and then you push on to the summit. You can't see the summit, like I said, from here. It's over uh, the South Summit. And actually the team I was involved with this year, one of the, the team members, one of the... Um, one of the soldiers, he actually got to the South Summit thinking it was actually the summit. He didn't realise there was another summit behind. He got there, was in floods of tears of joy, thinking he did it. And then one of the Sherpas pointed out in the distance where the actual true summit was, which is probably another couple of hours away. And then he started crying again. <laughs> but we're all ready at night time. That's when we go climbing because you need to really get up and down before good time the next day. The longer you leave it, the worse weather comes in. And that's unfortunately what happened in 96. So a lot of factors why the disaster happened. I think 13 people died on the mountain. But uh, um, a lot of people were up there uh, quite late. And that was one of the, the factors. So we started off early, team already, and then headed up. And to me, timed it perfectly because we were approaching the South Summit at sunrise. So for all our efforts, it was just the most incredible view. You had the shadow of Everest casting itself down on the rest of the world. That's going up to the south summit. And also, when you're there, you have this beautiful ridgeline. So you're just past the south summit, and you're going up to the true summit now. And down to the right, where this climb is looking down, a few thousand feet below you is Tibet. You look back the other way, a few thousand feet below you is Nepal. So you're standing on the border of the two countries. And it's a lovely ridgeline as well. Um, it's got some nice exposure without being too knife-like. And you also got what's the, the, it's called the famous Hillary Step, you may have heard of, which some people are wondering now, has it disappeared following the earthquake? Have these rocks come down? Because that's one of the last uh, obstacles, if you like, before you get to the summit of Mount Everest. That's the Hillary Step close-up. That's looking down on Nupsi, a 7,000-metre peak. That's literally approaching the summit where the prayer flags are and myself standing on the top of the world. And once you are there, people ask me, what does it feel like? But myself and other members of the team, to be honest, we didn't really feel much because we knew the importance of getting back down safely. You know, more people actually die coming back down than they do going up. <coughs> Various reasons. One, because you're really tired, you've expended a lot of energy, you're dehydrated, you're malnourished, you're not thinking clearly, and some people just switch off thinking they've done it. So you can't become too complacent. So you have your water, bite to eat if you can, then take your photos, and then get yourself down. 
And again, amazing views. So here now you're looking down on uh, Makalu, which was that mountain we're looking up when we climbed that earlier peak called uh, Island Peak. So you're actually looking down at other 8,000 meter peak giants. And in the distance is the fourth highest mountain world, Kanchenjunga. So you've got the fifth and fourth in your, in your um, view. On the way down though, um, <coughs> our work hadn't finished. We got called by another team to help out with a rescue. A climber had badly frostbitten hands and feet and um, was left really by a team to die. And they were picked up by another team who thankfully rescued her, but they didn't have the manpower to bring her down the Cumber Icefall. So we got the call out and four from our team uh, volunteered to help, along with uh, some of the Sherpas from, from other teams, and try to help get her down. So we took her down the notorious Cumber Icefall, which was hard going. And we're very lucky, to be honest, because... Um, we could have um, come a cropper ourselves because there was actually an icefall collapse then and we were minutes away, we just passed it. It was actually crumbling as we were going through and no other climber, including any of the Sherpas, could get up or down that day. So we were lucky that we picked her up very early because we knew it would go down quite uh, slowly. But thankfully got her back down to base camp. She was evacuated to Kathmandu and I saw her actually six months later and she's made a good recovery. So... Um, um, we're all very grateful for that. And some final thoughts by um, our team member. Right, well, back at base camp. Um, successful trip to the summit of Everest. Um, and I'm feeling pretty chuffed, actually. Um, unfortunately, the camera, uh, the hard drive packed up above 8,000 metres, so no footage on the route, no footage on the summit. Real, real disappointment. Especially, <coughs> especially with the uh, the final summit ridge being so so stunning um, across from the south summit, across over the Hillary Step and up to the main summit. Um, really disappointed not to be able to get any video footage of it, but such is life. Anyway, got down um, lunchtime today. Came down from camp to to base camp. Um, pretty exhausted then. Um, but already starting to feel much, much better. Food's going down nicely. Um, drinks going down nicely. <coughs> well, stop him before he coughs over all of you as well. So, successful trip. You know, we were 100% record, so it was an amazing experience. Um, looking slightly different to our original team photo. I mean, to a man, we lost about a stone and a half to two stone per individual, you know, you're quite weakened after the trip, and it took a few people uh, a bit of time to recover, but well worth it. So that was our Everest expedition. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Please feel free to ask questions now or, or afterwards. Thank you. Dr. Raj, wow. I think I speak for everyone by saying we're all completely in awe of you. Thank you so much for talking to us today. A huge thank you as well to all of you for listening. If you're interested in finding out more about our organisation, including how to become a member, please check out our website, which is enhg.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at enhgad or on Instagram at enhg underscore Abu Dhabi. If you fancy sending us an email, our address is Abu Dhabi at enhg.org. I'd also like to take this opportunity to thank our wonderful patron, 
His Excellency Sheikh Nahyan bin Mubarak Al Nahyan, and for the generous support of our volunteer committee members, a special mention to Mona for her help with editing these podcasts, and thanks as well to our individual family and corporate ENHG members for their support. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.